Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I need to let you know that today's episode has been sponsored by Joe Davis, who is a young conductor based here in the United Kingdom, conducting many orchestras across the Midlands and beyond. Joe subscribes to my Patreon page at the conductor level, meaning that he could choose an episode to sponsor, as well as gaining access to all of the content, as well as 10 hours of one-to-one teaching from myself. There'll be more about my Patreon page and how to subscribe later on in the episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who started his musical career as a chorister, going on to become a countertenor, singing in choirs and also on the opera stage. His conducting career really started in earnest in 2001, when he founded Tenebrae and the Tenebrae Consort. It is a great pleasure to welcome Nigel Short. Nigel, it's wonderful to see you and to speak with you and to chat with you. It's been a very long time on this podcast since I spoke to anybody who is a choral conductor, who conducts choirs. So lovely to meet you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. Um, Regular listeners will know I always go back to the very beginning and how music first came into your life. I read this morning when I do my homework or did my homework that Solihull, which is just down the road from me in Birmingham, featured early in your life. So when did music come in? Musical parents, musical family, or did it? was it a bolt out the blue? Bolt out the blue. Yeah. Um, nobody in my family was remotely musical. Um, and uh, I think I was seven, and a guy called Ian Simcock, who then later went on to be an organ scholar at Christchurch, Oxford, and was at Westminster Cathedral as assistant organist, um, had just joined my local primary school, and stood up in assembly and said, um, my local church choir are looking for new boys to join. And um, and he mentioned that you could earn as much as one pound on a Saturday uh, <laughs> by singing at four weddings, which is 25p a wedding. And I think at the time I was doing a paper round with my older brothers and getting about 50p for, for the whole week. And uh, I sort of quickly uh, did the sums and thought, yeah, that sounds like a pretty decent deal. And I I had no idea about singing or anything. Um, and I found this kid in the in the break time and said, Yeah, what was this about? You know, a pound. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say it was all about money to start with. And anyway, at the end of that school day, his mum arrived. Um, you know, um, it sort of tells you how times have changed, but you know, I I didn't say anything to my mum. Uh, my mum wasn't there. I've just walked home from school. Um, but after school, uh, Ian Simcock and his mum took me off into Solihull to the parish church. And I walked into this um, 13th century church, which I'd, I'd never been in a church or not to my knowledge. I couldn't remember one and was kind of um, bowled over by the architecture and the smell of the stone. And then I heard this sound, which was the boys in the in the distance singing. And uh, I mean, for people that know about parish church music, certainly in the 70s and 80s, St. Alfred Solihull was an extremely good parish church choir. And um, and I, I sat there through this rehearsal, not really you know knowing what on earth was going on. And I was rather mesmerized. And then um, at the end, I had to sort of sing with a couple of the other older boys. Um, and the guy said, the, the conductor said, um, okay, do, do, do you want to join? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow not knowing what i was letting myself in for and he said okay well we'll see you on friday night um I don't know. and then told my parents about it and they were kind of mystified and then you know they had they had a lot of rehearsal they had rehearsals on mondays and tuesdays 
and then Fridays, and then there were services on Saturdays and Sundays. So it's five days a week yeah. um, with with all the weddings on Saturday. And you know, money aside, I just fell in love with it instantly, and and I, I was hooked. And then through various points in my chorister life, um, when sport was getting in the in the way, or rather, music was getting in the way of sport. Um, at the end of the day, I I could never quite bring myself to leave. Um, mm. I, I just sort of stuck with it, and then when my voice broke and I started to sing alto, I had singing lessons, and I wasn't really very good at anything else. Um, so music uh, became really a focus, and and I enjoyed being good at it, and and it, that that sort of love of hearing a choir sing and singing in a choir has, has never left me. Mm. Well, I'm, it's interesting. You, two things that's come up from there. Firstly, I know St Alfred's Church in Solihull because I've played in there, and I think I've even conducted in there once. And it is a wonderful church, and it very atmospheric. Um, always enjoyed um, playing and performing in there. The second thing is how music grabs hold of you, and even though you might have another love, you know, I, I'm as re- listeners will know, I'm a big cricket fan, and I've played cricket all of my life. I had a trial for Kent Schoolboys, and I was more worried about being late for my youth orchestra rehearsal that was after it than I was about bowling well in the trial. And and how you know music sort of it does become the most important thing in your life when you've been doing it for a long time. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. And I've you know lived and breathed it. And um, my church choir every, I mean, uh, the occasional weekend we'd go off to a cathedral and sing um, the services when the cathedral choir was on holiday. And in the summer, we'd go away for a week. And we used to go to Hereford Cathedral, Gloucester, Litchfield, whatever. And, uh, you know, they were the highlights of my of my year. You mm. know, I came from a very poor, humble background and, and we didn't have any family holidays. I think my last one was when I was uh, age six with my with my own family. Yeah. Um, and and these these were like holidays. And I love being with the boys and singing. The I remember sort of thinking, I wish I could do this all the time. And when I was ten, I I learned about cathedral choirs, and we were we were visiting Worcester, I think, and I saw this advert for boys, and I said to my mum and dad, you know, I'd I'd really like to join, um, and we went to my my church organist, and he said, oh, I'm really sorry, you're you're too old, uh, <laughs> seven to nine year olds, they don't take ten year olds, so you know, I I kind of just missed out on, on what to do. Because I think whilst my parents didn't know anything about music and they certainly weren't churchgoers, um, they were incredibly supportive and, you know, endless lifts to all rehearsal services and trips away. Um, and, you know, all the way through my life, you know, my mum, my, my dad's not with us anymore, but they they always supported coming to concerts and things. And, and certainly in those early years, I mean, they were they were absolute saints in in how they sort of supported this weird um <laughs> love of mine my brothers and sisters all thought i was just bonkers but um i my mum and dad could obviously see something in it that that really captivated me and probably kept me out of trouble um yeah. and and so i went with it yeah yeah um going on to what you know we call higher, further and higher education According to the ever-reliable Wikipedia, you studied singing and piano at the Royal College of Music. Was that a joint thing, or did you go mainly as a singer and and piano second study or something like that? Um, They were joint to start with. I also studied organ and um, composition. Right. Um, And I I probably, you know, if I'm being honest, I was probably a better singer than a pianist, but uh, I was supposed to take my piano series quite 
uh, studies uh, quite seriously. And um, I was still a keen rugby player and ended up breaking fingers and whatever. And my my then um, piano professor was a guy called P Peter Valfish, uh, who was a fairly scary guy. And hmm. of course, he got um, uh, children and grandchildren who are now extremely well-known uh, musicians. Um, and I, he just sussed me out. He knew I could I could sight read pretty well, um, and sometimes I would you know get through a piece without dropping any wrong notes or anything like that, and be really pleased with myself. And he would just sort of say at the end of it, "Very good, very good sight reading, Nigel." <laughs> <laughs> How does he know? Um, and I think what he he once sort of sat me down and said, "Look, this is crazy. You're you're." breaking fingers and you're you're singing a lot and you're not doing enough practice I really want you to to work this week and and try for me to do six hours a day on this what it was a piece of shoebiz I think um and I thought blimey six hours a day how, how am I going to cope with that and I probably managed two or three hours on this one piece each mm. day um and when I went back in I played it and I thought well yeah I can definitely tell a difference and he said ah oh, very interesting very interesting so two three hours a day <laughs> I thought <laughs> that's just weird and anyway yeah. he, he, he you know I was never going to be a concert pianist or anything like that and I spent most of my time accompanying um other singers mm. uh in their lessons and when they were practicing and, and I loved that and just sort of picking up stuff and sight reading it um organ sort of pretty quickly fell away because I didn't have a, a, an instrument to regularly practice on. Um, and the composition, I studied with a guy called Justin Connolly, who was very ill in his first year. So I ended up uh, having a composition lesson with Peter Phillips of Talis Scholars um, mm. fame. And I took uh, to this lesson um, uh, a mass, I think it was for double choir, unaccompanied um, mass, a Kyrie that I'd written. And, and Peter... Um, at the beginning of the lesson, sort of sat down at the piano and said, okay, so what are you working on? And I showed him this thing. And and there was no piano reduction. It was just sort of, and, and Peter obviously couldn't score reading. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, oh, you're a bit of a pianist as well, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am, actually. He said, oh, well, would you like to play it? So I sat down and played through my own piece, and and, and he obviously thought it was rubbish. Because um, he then <laughs> said, um, you're a bit of a singer as well, aren't you, countertenor? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sort of depping at Westminster Abbey and singing for Simon Preston and David Hill at Westminster Cathedral. And he said, oh, do you want to sing something? And I said, yeah, sure, I've, I've got some bark here. And I, so I got up and he sat down at the piano and I put this bark and it had quite a tricky piano part and he looked at it and squinted a bit and then said, um, can you play as well as sing? <laughs> and then at the end of that, that lesson, he said, look, I run a group called the Talis Scholars, uh, who, of course, I'd heard of. And he said, would you like to come and sing with us? Mm. And so I, I sort of started singing. I think my very first thing with them was actually a recording project. It was the Bird Great Service, um, that recording. And I, you know, having, I was only 19, um, sort of just ended up there on the day and uh, just immersed into it. And, and then I became a member for about three or four years. Uh, which is great it's sort of you know wonderful but so our studies were a complete mess at, at college piano because of rugby and sporting injuries and just lack of ability really same with organ um singing i loved but i i didn't practice enough because i was a really good sight reader mm. so i ended up actually going out and working a lot um and that's why i eventually i got kicked out of college at the beginning of my second year 
because um not because i was rubbish but um uh there was a an opera production going on in italy in a place called reggio emilia which is a it's a beautiful um you know horseshoe uh theater it's mm. where Pavarotti made his uh, operatic debut and his oh, wow. um uh, and me that's uh, one vocal claim to fame um and i turned up one morning at college and my professor singing professor keith davis said um uh how do you fancy doing an opera uh and i said yeah sure uh mm. and he said well it's in italy uh, ooh. um <laughs> and it's with uh the other countertenor is james bowman and james bowman was my absolute hero wow um, i just yeah, yeah. adored his singing and i thought well yeah absolutely i'll do it i'd never been on a plane i'd never been to italy yeah. um i'd never done an opera i'd never done anything remotely theatrical on stage um uh, but i thought well i can do it uh it's if it's handle you know i'll be able to learn it pretty quickly and i he said okay you've got a bit heathrow at four o'clock this afternoon uh, and of course i'd never been to an airport i didn't even have a passport so i went to <laughs> a, got a visitor's passport which you can oh yes yeah, yeah and i i went home uh, i packed every piece of clothing i owned into a bag took it down to a laundrette and this wonderful woman um, um, sort of took it all and said, go on, you go off and do what you need to do, get a passport and I'll I'll have it ready for you when you come back. And then I went off um, to this uh, airport. You know, I didn't know what to do. Did check in, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was a complete mystery to me. Um, and, and I went off to Italy and, and I was there It was for six weeks. And I said, you know, what am I going to do about college? And they said, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll tell them what it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were some pretty amazing singers in this production. But um, Benita Valente was there and she'd been at um, New York Met uh, about three years before with Pavarotti sort of singing the same thing. So there are some serious singers in this production. It was conducted by Charles Farncombe and it was Handel's Ronaldo. And I turned up um, in Milan Airport. There was a taxi driver with a sign saying, <laughs> you know, uh, Nigel Short. I went off drove for two hours and I thought what have I done <laughs> what am I doing here <laughs> and at about nine o'clock in the, the following morning I, I I was dumped at this hotel it was a five-star hotel called the Astoria I think in Reggio Emilia um and of course it's just another world yeah. um and nine o'clock in the morning there was a telephone call from some German repetitor um saying okay uh, Mr Short you are on stage at 10 o'clock and I said well doing what and mm. they said oh it's it's act two i said well you know i i haven't got any music i didn't, <laughs> I didn't know the opera yeah. um and i hadn't got a score mm. uh, and he's there was silence on the end of the end of the phone and he said okay well meet me down uh in the reception at 9 30 and so he took me over and he just pushed me to the back of stage and pushed me on when i was meant to and of course there was a chord on the harpsichord for some recit and I didn't know what was going on. So there was silence. And mm. the producer, who's called Pierre Luigi Pizzi, um, famous guy, but very fiery character, jumped on stage, sort of shouting at me, well, shouting to everybody, sort of saying, you know, who's meant to be singing? You know, go on. Um, and when he realized it was me and I said, you know, I don't, I don't know it. Yeah. Um, he was apoplectic. <laughs> he I bet was, he was. <laughs> kind of spitting in my face and saying, you know, why do they send me a boy? You know, who knows nothing? And 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 I felt, you know, totally um, humiliated in front of everybody because the orchestra were there. 
there were loads of um, dancers and other um, stagehands who were actually a part of the production who were on stage and in front of everybody he just you know shouted at me and and he he just threw his arms up and went off and the whole rehearsal finished there and then wow. so I I grabbed the German repetiteur and I said okay have you got a score and he said well yes but you know what's the point he said I could come on let's go and learn it yeah. um, and I had five arias to do it's all in Italian of course um, and lots of recit and I think by 10 o'clock that night I'd memorized it all wow um, and I said great. okay you call the stage manager and I'll learn all the, the stage moves. Um, and so by about one or two o'clock in the morning, I'd learned, to, I'd memorized all the stage moves. And luckily it wasn't a complicated um, production because all the, the characters were kind of statues that were moving around on tables right. that, that were on wheels. So, you know, the, the very first opening scene was a huge facade of a building with a like Roman characters in it. And I was one of those statues in this facade. And so I'd be there 15 minutes before the curtain, well, when the curtain would go up, you'd see this thing. And that was what people were looking at whilst they were chatting away for 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then there'd be the overture. And then I would come to life and actually start singing. And I would step down off from the facade onto a table uh, that was being wheeled around by all these guys dressed in black. Mm. So the stage movements were pretty easy to to memorise. But the next day, uh, there was a full run through and I I turned up. And of course, I'm, I was the first one to sing in the um, in the in the opera Delle nostre fatiche siam prossimi alla meta o gran Rinaldo. I can still remember it. <laughs> I bet um, you can if you learned it that uh, quickly. Well, yeah. And um, and uh, I I did the whole thing and I didn't make any mistakes, whatever. And this guy Pierre Luigi Pizzi jumped up on stage at the end, went through the whole thing, and I thought, what am I? You know, am I about to get another mouthful? And mm. um, and and he sort of said, so you did know the opera? And I said, no, no I learned it yesterday. Um, and he said, no, it's not possible. And he looked at the German repetitor and who sort of nodded and said, yeah, he, we learned it, it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he kissed me on the lips in front of everybody. Um, and then we were best friends um, thereafter. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a, a fun six weeks. But, uh, sorry, I mean, this is a very long answer to your no, question. No, it's fine. When it's I, a fascinating when got, answer. When I got back, when I got back home, because um, there was no email or anything like that. And I'd made a few calls home, but not to my singing professor. Uh, I turned up at college and he said, oh, my God, I'm really sorry. But the college have decided, you know, you weren't allowed to be away for six weeks during term and they've terminated your course. Gee, well, well, I, I mean, was that... kind of, what? Um, yeah. how, how can that happen? Um, and uh, he said, look, don't worry. You know, most of the course is not what you want to do anyway. I will give you free singing lessons for for what would be in the rest of your time. So, um, and Bowman heard about it. Mm. Bowman then said, "Okay, I'll I'll offer you free coaching and singing lessons as well for another two and a half years, mm. um, which is how long I would have been at college." Um, and in fact, Bowman then spread the word through various agents. Ibsen Tillett was the was one of the big agencies then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and within, I mean, probably two or three weeks, I've been offered another two or three operas one was with scottish opera with richard hickox conducting i was offered a little role in julius caesar um and in fact at the same time the agent had found me an offer in germany uh singing the role of micah in handel's Sam samson or zamzorn um and that was a much bigger role so i decided to do that and then 
you know, the agency took me on, mm. uh, knowing that they could sort of throw me in at the deep end uh, and, and you know, any contemporary opera and basically get it right, um, whatever. And that was the end of college. <laughs> <laughs> I was a, a very unremarkable student who didn't uh, hang around for very long. Well, there, there's two things there. I mean, I think attitudes today would be different. You know, London colleges, you know, I'm Sheku won the Young, Young Musician of the Year and then went to the Academy and they couldn't must have expected him to be, you know, had engagements as a concerto soloist. All right, wouldn't have been six weeks, but I'm sure attitudes now would be different where, you know, if you're out there earning but still want to be a student and have lessons well then you know that we'll cope with it it's good for the college it's good for the college's name that that Absolutely. we have somebody like that you know and i think you know i'd contributed to college life in some ways but you know but it would it would be uh too far a stretch um of the imagination to say i was a model student yeah. so um you know I, at the time i was sort of slightly miffed I, I the only thing that really worried me was whether or not i'd be able to find enough work to afford to stay in london mm. um but as I say, uh, various people took me under their wing and um, I was doing a lot of deputising at Westminster Abbey and Westminster Cathedral. And lots of people heard about the college throwing me out. And and I was just inundated with with work offers. Mm. So I, I joined the Talis Scholars, deputising, and then lots of other solo opportunities came up. Um, so I, I was, you know, really extremely lucky. I sort of it wasn't what I went to college to sort of do to be a, a counter tenor soloist but it very quickly ended up being the thing that was easiest and uh, it, it, I meant singing in a lot of choirs which I I loved that was really the thing I wanted to do more than anything else. Before we come to conducting which we haven't really touched on yet uh, and and you know maybe early influences during those operatic days 1993 you joined the King's Singers and I, I, basically, from what I can read, I, I'm, but I'm sure you'll tell me that, that it's wrong, your experiences with them ended up with you wanting to found or start uh, Tenebrae and the Tenebrae Consort in 2001. Would that be right? By well, joining King Singers? Yeah. Kind of. I, I left the King Singers because I just wasn't enjoying singing very no. much. Um, I, I just started to get very nervous on stage and I wasn't right. enjoying the experience of sort of being up in front of you know, one or 2,000 people on a regular basis, really not feeling very confident. Um, and so I decided to leave. And at that stage, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Mm. I'd never conducted anything. Um, um, I had started skiing when I was 30. Um, and I was 34 by this time. Um, and I, 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 you know, I played a lot of rugby and then various other sports. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always wanted to have one sport that I was kind of, you know, focused on. And I thought if I'm ever going to learn to ski properly, I ought to probably go and spend a, a season in a, a resort. and okay. do it every day. So I rented a chalet in Switzerland in a little village called Villars-sur-Alon. Um, and uh, I was there for, you know, a while. And the, the lady um, who had told me about this place uh, she and her husband Barbara Pollock and Craig Pollock they came to a King Singers concert and when I told them of my plan they said look well, look there's a there's a little chalet uh, that's coming up for rent at the end of this year when you're leaving the King Singers so why don't you come and have a look at it hmm. uh, so I did and then I ended up renting the chalet and staying there 
and Valerie Schulte, um, you know, the late Valerie Schulte, who was the widow of Sir George, of course, yes. uh, lived in the village as well. And uh, I was introduced to her at some point. And one morning she said, uh, oh, I've, I've got to go to Geneva today to meet the senior pastor at the cathedral um, because somebody's pulled out of a concert in in December at the end of the year. Um, I don't suppose that's something you could you could help with, is it? And I said, well, I guess so. What does he want? And she said, well, it's a, a it's a choir that's pulled out. So you want to call a concert with Christmas music? And I thought, yeah. well, yeah, I could probably do that. Get some friends out for a trip to Switzerland. And I said, but all my all my friends are professionals. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't ask them to come and do it for nothing. So there'd have to be a fee with flights and hotels, all that kind of stuff. Um, and she said, don't worry about that. We can sort that out. And the senior pastor offered to pay. Yeah. Um, and then said, you know, can we can we have a recording of the choir? Mm. Uh, of course, there was no choir. And, <laughs> no, and, no. <laughs> um, so pretty quick um, off the mark, I decided uh, we put a, a, a Christmas recording together. Um, and and the, I don't know, the, as one bit fell into, you know, everything fell into place. Um, I thought, well, gosh, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to just want to do a whole load of, you know, cheesy Christmas carols. I quite like yeah. to do something a bit edgy, a bit new. So I ended up writing a new piece called The Dream of Herod. Um, that was a bit theatrical. Um, and then once I got in front of the choir, um, there were kind of all bits of my past went into this. I wanted the mm. precision of singing in a group like the King Singers, um, but with a bigger group. I wanted the power of a big cathedral choir. And then I wanted us to present concerts in a slightly theatrical way. So mm. it's a bit, you know, but singing in a big cathedral choir or a professional chamber choir. Um, uh, the, the stage work I'd done, I'd understudied at English National Opera for, for years and years. I understudied for years and years, never went on. And then two months after I joined the King Singers, I had a call saying, you know, can you come and do Xerxes? And I was in <laughs> Germany. And I couldn't do it. So, yeah. um, and once we did this this concert, uh, it was like a snowball effect. Sorry, this the skiing. <laughs> <laughs> good pun. I like, I like a good um, pun. <laughs> uh, but people heard about this concert that was going to happen sort of a few months before. And then we ended up putting, I think, four or five concerts together in Switzerland. And uh, somebody that sort of became a, a strong supporter of Tenebrae said, well, look, I would like two or three concerts for various charities that I support in London. Mm. So... So we we did about eight concerts in that first December and we'd done the recording and, and it was a real voyage of discovery. And and I was very worried about going back into professional music because of, you know, the, the nerves that I suffered from as a singer. Um, but I, I just found that actually conducting, you know, with my back to the audience, but so having a real input to the music, but not having to sing um, was a much better experience for me personally. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the thing sort of was was born, if you like, um, by accident. Mm. Um, and then at the end of that tour, one of the singers came up to me um, and said, you you need to do this again. You know, this is um, this is a bit special and we've all enjoyed it and you can't let this be a one off. So the following Christmas, I think we did something similar and same thing. People said, you know, look, this needs to be. Um, taken more seriously so my neighbours in Switzerland Barbara and Craig Pollock became um, sort of patrons of the choir uh, co-founded it if you like and made it a, a proper professional group and they mm. they supported us with free management we were able to use their offices um, 
and and Tenebrae was born. So it was, you know, the, the whole conducting thing was a, a mystery to me. I've sort of learned on the hoof, hmm. as it were. Um, and so, yes, bits of the King Singers did go in. But actually, at that point when I left, yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so it was, you know, it was all kind of fell into place by accident. But, uh, you know, thank God it did. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant story. Um, you just said that you sort of learnt it on the hoof conducting. Do you think you can look back now and look at any of the conductors you sang for, be it all the way back to St. Elphage's, right the way through through Italy and the opera and understudying, any any of those conductors you worked with before you took up conducting yourself that you think, actually, I'm, that bit of that's rubbed off on me or, you know, something. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, of course, we're all influenced, but, you know, I played 22 years in the CBSO and everybody who stood in front of me influenced me in a good or bad way. But, yeah, what who, who do, can you put a finger on and say, yeah, I think they influenced yes, me? Yes, I mean, uh, there are lots of people that, you know, helped me a lot, a lot in, in the early years. Um but I think in terms of the way I conducted, the way I communicated, uh, the biggest impression I had was when I first went to London as a student and was singing for Simon Preston and David Hill. Yeah. And they're chalk and cheese. I mean, they could not be more opposite. Um, Simon was electrifying, um, kind of terrifying. Um, but, you know, it was kind of oh, um, had a hypnotic effect, you know, magnetic kind of mm. um animal excitement it was it was really thrilling um and then I went to Westminster Cathedral and sang for David Hill and just had time to look around me and you know everything was able to sink in and sort of breathe it in a bit more um and I I just loved both ways of making music but ultimately uh the the Westminster Cathedral way was was better for me as a person mm. um and so I, I did two years in the choir at Westminster Abbey um I joined when I was 19 so I was the youngest ever appointed lay vicar to the choir um and then when i was 21 um i left and went down the road to westminster cathedral and sang for james o'donnell as mm. director of music there for five years um and i would say yeah david hill and simon preston i'm a, I'm a kind of mix of those two um i mean uh, who knows I, th these days i i kind of probably am you know have had enough time now to to learn how to just be myself and 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 forget about you know, trying to be this that or the other. Um, and so long as whatever I do, I was I was given some very good advice by a singer. I mean, a I'd I'd sung for a, a, quite a lot of um, average conductors myself, um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I knew what I I shouldn't do, um, and I knew what I wanted. Uh, it was a you know tough voyage journey, if you like. Um, working out how I could get what I wanted for me and the singers at, at times, you know, I didn't think I was a, an angel to them at, at certain points, um, but I was very passionate about it and I knew, I knew what I wanted. Um, and eventually I, I sort of relaxed a bit and found, you know, I could work with the musicians and the singers in a much more creative and positive way, um, you know, not by being quite so terrifying um, and allowing them, you know, very much to be a, an ensemble working with me, rather yeah. than for me mm. um and i would think you know that's um <clears throat> as, as a as a singer and yeah I, I kind of knew what i wanted um from a conductor so i you know i was trying to always work from the singer's perspective if you like mm. Mm. no so, i agree i mean yeah as i said i'm an ex-orchestral player and so often i'll be still thinking what would i want to see now 
if I was sitting back in my old chair in the second violins, you know, um, and and I never come at it from a, you know, inverted commas, conductor's point of view. I know I was thinking, what do they need to see? How can I help? How can I, you know, how can we all collaborate together? Uh, I do occasionally talk about influences, do an, uh, you know, an upbeat or a fourth beat of the bar in four and think, oh, that was a really Sakari Oromo fourth beat of the bar. Um, <laughs> uh, and occasionally catch my little fi- little finger poking out from my baton and think, stop doing a rattle, you know, the little finger sticking out. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, the more you do it, you do form your own style, um, you know, and... And you know, those influences are there, and that they become much more in the background, way, way, way. Yes. You know, yeah. I think what, uh, that that bit, bit, good bit of advice that I got from a singer. Sorry, I didn't um, finish that. Was um, and he was a singer who did quite a lot of opera, right? Um, and and he said honestly, Nigel, don't worry too much about you know doing correct um, conducting and all the rest of it. If it communicates and you're getting what you want, that's the most important thing. Um, mm. If you want to be physical, be physical. Don't feel inhibited and sort of restricted thinking about conducting patterns, all the rest of it. If what you do just comes naturally and you get what you want and it communicates, then don't fight against that. And mm. that that gave me an awful lot of freedom, actually. Um, and, you know, uh, over the years, I've had um, conducting lessons, especially for working with orchestras. Mm. Um, and and I've always had that at the back of the, my mind. And everybody that um, has worked with me sort of said, yeah, it's absolutely right. You know, th- th- you know, I'm I'm far too old to start conducting, to learn to get properly. Um, but if you can go so far just by doing what feels natural, mm. then, you know, why change that? Um, and that gives you a lot of confidence. I, I wrote a post on my Patreon page. Um, uh, dear, dear listener, this is not an advert yet. That comes later in the episode, as you well know. But I, I wrote an article on my Patreon page um, dissecting Brahms IV as conducted by Carlos Kleiber. And I pointed out that in the second movement, he probably um, showed six beats in the bar in the way that you're taught to show six beats in the bar, maybe for three bars in the total in the entire movement. The rest of the time, it's doing things that are all to do with the music, shapes, phrasings, and you rarely saw a one uh, or definitely hardly ever saw a six, you know, just doing what comes naturally. And, you know, he's the person that uh, the answer to question four has been more than anybody else, Carlos Kleinberg, and he wasn't doing, um, he could conduct, obviously, in six if he wanted to, but it was all about the music, and I think that's so important. I mean, yeah. something I was going to linger on, actually, between... Well, I can lump in all three. So, I mean, Tenebrae, you know, the small, very small sort of chamber choir size, but then you have worked with much bigger choruses, I'm sure, and then with orchestra. It sounds like you don't try and delineate between the three or between various sizes or ensembles and groups. You just do your thing. No, and uh, it's it's pretty much the first thing I say to any orchestra and any leader, you know, um, I'm a singer, that's how I work. You know, my my upbeat is a breath. Yeah. Um, exactly the same way you would lift, you know, the bow. Yeah. Um, or if you're a brass player, you'd be you'd be re- ready. And, you know, that's key. Watching mm. that, feeling that breath for, for how you're going to come in. It's, it gives so much information. And if it gives information, then it gives confidence. And, you know, if if somebody wants, um, well, it, it's never happened, basically every you know professional leader sort of looks at me and says okay yeah we can work with that yeah yeah of course i just say look if there's anything i'm doing that you don't understand um just tell me and to to this day or you know very rarely do they say actually could you give us this here which mm. is 
you know, whatever. Um, but it, it, it communicates. So mm. it works. And, you know, it, it, even with big orchestras, um, which has been, um, you know, the biggest one I worked with was BBC Symphony Orchestra. Um, when we had know, 105 players for some Zemlinsky, you know that was pretty terrifying. But, but again, I, what you're saying about not having to worry about beats and be kind of uh, bound by mm -hmm. by that feeling, it, it, there's an element of trust. You know, once you've got the trust with the musicians, then you know they're professionals, they're brilliant musicians themselves. If I just let them do that and I can then sort of guide and, and do the musical shapes and nuances that I want, knowing that they they, they don't need nuts and bolts from, from anybody. They're, they're brilliant, instinctive musicians anyway. Mm. And you know, certainly with orchestras, I think less so with choirs, the professional chamber choirs, orchestras are used to having one conductor one week, another one the next week and so forth. And, and they... They can just switch like that and, you know, find a very comfortable modus operandi and and give what the conductor wants and, you know, make it a very happy experience. So, you know, even though I find it uh, terrifying conducting orchestras, um, you know, they're some of the most thrilling and, and exciting experiences I've ever had. I'm assuming uh, I'm, it's a big assumption because I really don't know the answer. I'm assuming you are you are a baton-free conductor. Um, I have used a baton every now and again, yeah. um, and again, you know, always saying to it tends to be with big orchestras just so that they can see me because when I'm with a choir of twenty, mm. uh, sometimes my movements are really tiny. Yes. Yeah. And, and and an orchestra needs to be able to see what I'm doing, and if that's just magnified by the baton. You know, I can keep my movements quite small and the baton will sort of amplify it and just make sure it's clear um, from a distance. But I always ask the leader and say, you know, look, you know, I, I'll use this. If if there's anything that doesn't work, just say um, and I'll try, you know, with my hands, whatever. And, you know, I've never been told to put the baton down. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> must be all right. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, and funnily enough, I'm. The very first time I conducted an orchestra was the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, no less. Yeah. Um, and and I told them that I'd never. Um, and it, we were doing the Mozart Requiem, and we had two days rehearsal, and then the concert was being recorded live by Warner Classics. Mm. And I told them that I'd never conducted an orchestra, and their faces kind of were sort of <laughs> I can't describe it. <laughs> it um, disbelief, I think, was uh, what came across. Um, and then as soon as I started, you know, um, breathing and working with them very quickly, kind of all relaxed and and um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a funny moment. Sort of. <laughs> um, you you did actually mention, I'm sure, just earlier on that you'd had some lessons um, to do with the learning to conduct with orchestra as opposed to the what can you remember anything specific that that was greatly different from what you did naturally anyway with your own choir and with small choirs and um no. before nothing no no so no uh, it, i think the only i think it was beginning of the bernstein just the psalms which which starts on is it the the, the sixth beat of a bar um and whoever it was sort of said give give an, an absolutely huge 
upbeat wherever wherever it needs to be yes you know, and then you're you're in on the last beat of a bar so it's mm. up yeah um, as long as you <clears throat> uh, up. yeah and yeah. and i and, and i was sort of fretting about it and this gary walker was his name and and he sort of said do it and you know i'll you know he gets me to to conduct yeah and he says yep yeah, i can follow that yeah and and every now and again he'll say Okay, not sure what you wanted there. So, what's the articulation you want? What's the phrasing? Mm. And then he, and then he just sort of say, so, how do you think you should get that? How would you do it naturally? And I'd do it, and he said, okay, well, you do a bit more of that, um, and then sometimes you say less of that. Mm. Um, but no, that that's the thing. You know, all these conductors, they didn't try to, you know, remake me or whatever. No. They, they worked with what was there, and they said, you know, stick to what you do um, as much as you can. Because yeah. then it, it'll look natural, and if it's natural, um, musicians can follow it. If you're trying to look like something else or something that you're not, then you know professional uh, orchestral players pretty quickly can get uh, a bit cheesed off um, or lose interest. So I think you know you you don't try to be something you're not, um, and as long as you're genuine, you're doing it from the right for the right reasons. Um, and you know a lot of the time I will. Quite early on in in a uh, rehearsal or whatever recording session, when I'm with a new orchestra, I'll get the choir to sing on their own, and without fail, an orchestra will go, "Wow, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, this guy knows knows what he's doing. That that's a pretty ace choir. Okay, we'll 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 go with this. Yeah, um, yeah. And and then it's you know, as I say, it's always been um, slightly scary, but incredibly rewarding. And the Zemlinsky in particular, when um, you know that that piece of music um, is a psalm. I can't remember what it was. Oh, psalm twenty-three. Um, it, it, it's very, it's very romantic, and it, you, it's pulled around all the time. And you've got, you know, five clarinet parts, five flute mm. parts, and and it's massive. Mm. And and quite often phrases are just pulling up at the end of a phrase, just as another instrument is about to take the momentum over. And and yeah, I was quite worried about it. Um, but in the end, it just sort of came across amazingly. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the recording was put together very quickly. I mean, we were very lucky to get get a, a day with the orchestra. Um, and, you know, the, I think there was one passage where the, there's a big trumpet moment and the trumpet splitted on the first take. And on the second take, um, played it, you know, too quietly. Mm. And then on the third take, um, split it again. So, uh, you know, I remember sort of thinking, okay, well, that's the only one we've got. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it went, and the reviewer picked up on that one thing. And I just thought, oh, that's so unfair. Yeah. You yeah. <laughs> Bastards. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what you said is so true is the fact that, you know, fortunately, nobody wanted to completely rebuild you, you know, do a bionic Nigel. Um and, you know, just moulded what you already did naturally. Because when you stand in front of, whether it's a small chamber choir or the BBC Symphony Orchestra and a, and a massive choir, you don't want to be thinking about technical aspects. You want to be just be doing the natural thing that you do. You know, and that, that's so important is to be in a space where you're not thinking about, you know, yeah. like a golfer would yeah. think about, I've got to have my left wrist straight to here for this or whatever else. They, it's all by then. It's been practised and ingrained and they just do it. You know, that's what yeah. makes them great. The, the only thing you, you as a conductor you know if i'm ever asked for advice is just make sure you know the music mm. and you know how you want it to go um so that you know if you do forget about something technically 
you're not lost. You've still yeah. got that music in you. And it's, you know, if, if you're flapping around, at least you're flapping around a piece of music that you know, rather mm. than actually um, becoming a, uh, you know, a hindrance. Yeah. Well, what's brilliant about that last sentence is it's almost as if you've read my mind because it's time for the 11th question, which you don't know about. And the 11th question is this, which is when you come to learn a new score, how do you go about it? Do you sit at the piano because you're a pianist and, and dissect it that way? Or do you do it with your inner ear? And for us geeks, and I say us because I'm one of them, are you a user of red, blue, black, different colours in your scores, or do you keep your scores nice and clean and barely write anything in? What's your process for learning a new score? Um, well, it depends. Uh, if it's a core piece, uh, I, I can kind of learn it, you know, just by looking at it. Um, you know, I can score read and hear it. I do a lot of record producing, right? Um, and and so that's that's been a, a very good uh, learning uh, yeah. tool, if you like. Um, generally, I'll I'll try and sit down at the piano. I mean, most of my fingers have been broken, you know, through playing <laughs> rugby. So I'm not much of a pianist these days. Um, but sometimes hearing intonation for a choral piece on a piano is not that helpful. Mm. Um, um, as we get used to intervals, you know, which don't quite ring in the same way when you've got voices, major thirds, you know, in particular, I like, uh, you know, not too bright. Mm. So I I will try and learn a piece just by looking at it. If it's an orchestral piece, you know, I'll sit down and score read and and go through the different sections, the brass, the woodwind, whatever, and make sure I know what's there. Mm. Um, so that when it comes to just sort of carrying the whole thing, you know, which area am I going to focus on? And yes, I have used with orchestral scores. Um, I've used red for for brass and whatever blue for strings and that kind of stuff. Funnily enough, when I went to Valerie Schulte's house, um, she very kindly said uh, Tenebrae could use um, Sir George's study mm. for auditions. And I went down there and everything it was as it was when, when he died. And he was working on a box of John Passion. So there is a score mm. open um, and there are these huge red marks through the score, you know, sort of go up and have a look. And But, um, but that's only for orchestral stuff and I most of the choral stuff that we we do I know inside out and I don't mm. I I don't I'm pretty rubbish eyesight these, these days I'm getting so old and we perform by candlelight so quite often the light isn't very good <laughs> and I, I I just um end up conducting from memory yeah. I, I I don't need to have my head down in a score um and you know if I don't know it well enough then well, I don't know it well enough. I need to, you know, do a bit more learning at home before I get out in front of the musicians. Mm. So yeah, um, it's if it's orchestral and it's a one-off like the Zemlinsky, um, you know, that score and the Stravinsky Symphony of Psalms that was pretty big. Those scores were marked up fairly well. The Stravinsky I knew really well because I studied it at A level, um, and I remembered it. I just loved the piece. Um, but the Zemlinsky I didn't know that well, so that was marked up quite heavily. But no, most call scores are not marked at all. No. And funnily enough, I'm, I'm meant to be in America at the moment with Tenebrae, um, and they've gone without me because I've, I've, I'm not allowed to fly at the moment through illness. I've just I had an operation a, a short while ago and not allowed to do any long-haul flights for a bit. Um, and the one of the singers, uh, Gabriel Crouch, sent me a message saying, um, is there any point in asking for your scores? I imagine they're not marked up, are they? And I said, I'm afraid they're not. No. <laughs> um, 
but the, the the repertoire was so well known with the singers you know you know i could just take a breath at the beginning of the program and, and they would just you know they'll, they'll give him a an armchair ride are you a young conductor thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the world of conducting then my patreon page is there for you I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player, and I offer you the chance to ask me any question any time of the day. You will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles, and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount, and if you're a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Nigel Short. Nigel, we've come to the end of the episode where the 10 questions reside and I always start with the first two lumped together as one what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate it's funny when I was young I I listened to just so much music um and uh, these days there's nothing nicer than sitting down in in the living room and just hearing a bit of white noise from the fire um it's I don't know I I don't think there's enough peace and quiet in our lives these days. What was, mm. uh, you know, digital electronic communication, um, and wherever you go, there's noise. It's it's almost impossible to find anywhere with peace and quiet. Uh, and if you can't get quiet, then just a gentle white noise is, uh, and we'll sort of just really, it's the most relaxing thing um, I can think of. Um, there is no more beautiful sound for me than the human voice. So, when there's a choir singing a, a beautiful chord, whatever it's from from those days when I was seven years old, um, there is still something absolutely magical about it, and just sends a, a thrill through me. So that's that's something I love. Um, in terms of sounds that I hate, um, I like jazz, uh, soft jazz, but the heavy jazz, you know, where it's meandering around and whatever. Um, uh, I, really great, really mm. great. And, you know, I'm pretty good at having the radio on and putting up with anything. Um, uh, but that will have me getting out of my seat and turning the radio off. <laughs> and I'm afraid um, some pop music, which is just uh, unbelievably banal, where there's, you know, one harmonic pattern that just goes again and again and again and again. And I just can't put up with it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm afraid the radio will be switched off if there's, a, you know, I'll get on to Radio 4 as quickly as I can. <laughs> well, I agree with you about modern jazz and, and yeah, I can't stand it, especially if it's just endless technical whizzing around in no particular key. That drives me insane. One, and one, of, the, one of the noise I hate is um, the sound of grinding gears. And my father would say, oh, Nigel, find them, don't grind them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, going back to your the sound that you love and a human voice, I was lucky enough just last night to conduct the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra with their own CBSO chorus and stood next to me was Roderick Williams singing the mystical songs by Vaughan Williams. And there are some moments in that concert last night which I just stood there thinking, 
Am I in the best, literally the best square meter in the planet right now? You know, to hear that a choir that amazing with a singer that amazing singing Vaughan Williams was just amazing. I yeah, I completely understand your answer after last night. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Um, it would be one of two things: either walking um, my dog with my, with my wife. We love to just sort of you know long walks, country walks. We always talk about walking Hadrian's Wall, um, you know, going out to the Peak District or Lake District, something like that. Um, or I'm I love skiing, mm. so I I would happily you know go up the mountain and just pootle around um, on on some some beautiful slopes in I don't know, somewhere um, gorgeous in the Alps. Very, very good answers. Uh, I'm not a skier. Never have been, never will be. Um, <laughs> but not me too, but I try. <laughs> yeah, but I have been to the top of an Alp during ski season and people are looking at me thinking, what's he doing up here? He's not dressed for this. <laughs> but I can understand why you do. That's, that's the point. Uh, question number four. Can you name your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Um, well, I mentioned them, actually. Uh, the choral conductors, David Hill and uh, Simon Preston. Yeah. Um, I think when I was when I was a chorister still, uh, my ch the church organist of Solihull uh, used to drive a few of us um, sort of older choristers over to hear Christchurch Oxford um, for the odd even song. Um, and it was just electrifying. Um, and so when I got to London and I had the chance to go and audition to him and then sing in the Abbey Choir, um, I jumped at the chance. And yeah, there was something incredibly compelling gripping about his his uh, his music making, you know, with the, with the advantage of um, uh, years and experience. You know, I, I've I've kept some elements of that, but then, you know, relaxed in other things. But yeah, I, Simon Preston and and David Hill were the two sort of really um, informative choral conductors for me. And how about current conductors? Uh, what Can you name your favourite current conductor or conductors? Uh, you can be repertoire-specific or choral-specific or orchestral-specific. I don't mind. Well, it would be quite contentious, this. Um, I, I, I've never sung for him. Um, I did produce a recording for him, which is quite a tricky experience. But... Um, I do, I do like Sir John Elliot Gardner's recordings. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Um, the 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 Bark Passions, um, and then a lot of his orchestral stuff. Um, you know, he he's it's just inside him, and and I think he communicates it very well to the singers. Um, you know, he's all sorts of stories about him as a as a person. You know, not always being terribly um, um, nice or or kind, whatever. Um. But his music making is is pretty special. So you know, I would I would always, if I had the chance to go and hear him conduct, I would go and hear him. Well, he he's definitely been given as an answer before to that question, but not for a very long time. But you're not alone. Others have mentioned John Elliot Gardner. Um, so yeah, brilliant. Number six. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? We've done some tricky pieces. You know, but they're, they're kind of always doable. There's nothing yeah. that's really, you know, impossible. Um, doing Path of Miracles by Joby Talbot was quite a challenge to start with. Uh, the, my favourite commission ever. Yeah. Uh, and possibly the, the 
the core piece that has had most impact on me and on Tenebrae's career. Um, but I think it's it's when I'm out of my comfort zone, right? Um, you know, conducting orchestras and especially the big symphonic stuff like Symphony of Psalms and the Zemlinsky. Um, I I worried about that a lot, mm. um, and and as I say, you know, we recorded the thing in just a day, I think, or a day and a half. Um, so I didn't really have time to, um, you know, much as I knew the scores and had prepared, I didn't really have time to sit back and relax and yeah, yeah. kind of learn, if you like. Um, so I, I would say those are the most challenging yeah. things. And and lots of, when I listen back to the recordings, some aspects um, were absolutely what I wanted. And then, you know, some just didn't quite go the way I wanted, but I just didn't have enough time with them to sort of work but yes those are kind of the the most difficult things it's worth pointing out as well isn't it that you know it's not just the bbc but also the commercial recordings with you know other orchestras sometimes unless you've had the opportunity to perform them beforehand the the works in question that you're going to record you're always up against it time-wise and which means that you know you haven't had chance to you know, find the comfortable spot of the armchair or, you know, arrange the cushions in the way that you want it to be arranged, which means that sometimes there may well end up being a compromise because the, the clock is ticking and you've got to be out of there by whatever time the session finishes. Absolutely. And two of our yeah. best recordings we've ever done. Um, back in 2005, um, I always wanted to record this Parry Songs of Farewell. And um, we'd just done the world premiere of Path of Miracles by Joby. And yeah. we'd rehearsed it and it was really fizzing. Um, and we went into these four recording sessions, which is quite a short uh, space of time to do a whole disc. And we we recorded uh, one of the songs of Farewell and I it, we just hadn't performed it enough. Yeah. And it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't living and breathing the way I wanted it to be with the choir, mm. sort of really knowing my interpretation. So after one recording session, um, I called the the boss at Signum Records, uh, Steve Long, and I said, "Look, I'm really sorry, but I don't want to put these down because then they're, they're just not in us. They're not in in us the way I want them to be forever, and mm. I'll always regret it if we if we just do this." There is this other commission we've just performed, and we all know it, and it's and it's really exciting. Uh, it's called Path of Miracles by Joby Talbot, and he said, "Well." I'm not giving you any more, you know, session time. You've got three sessions. Can you do it? Mm. I said, yeah, it's about 70 minutes long. I mean, we know it. So it kind of became, you know, you perform it once, twice, three times in each session. Um, bit of top and tailing. And the the Path of Miracles is one of the most exciting discs we ever did. And, mm. it, and it does feel like a, a live performance. And years later, um, once we perform Songs of Farewell all over the place and, you know, dozens of times we got around to recording it and it just flowed exactly the way I wanted it to and it was nominated for um BBC Music Magazine um award of the year so mm. um I think it was the right decision absolutely sounds like it was definitely when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without okay well um disregarding the obvious like passport um mm. and score and so forth um an umbrella i i hate being wet um and you know just being 
damping on tour and whatever. So uh, an umbrella is something I always, always make sure I've got. Um, yeah. Well, I think uh, the number of British, and the reason why I'm saying British conductors I've interviewed is approaching 50 out of the 120, by far more than any other nationality. And the reason why British is I would have expected somebody to have given the answer umbrella to that question before now, but they haven't. You're, I'm sure you're the first person to say umbrella. Um, oh. So, yeah, hurrah. Brilliant. Uh, I, you know, British. <laughs> yeah, in, indeed. <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, we've touched on it already. I, I think um, having the time yeah. to, to live and breathe the music with the musicians um i always feel sort of heartbroken if we've got a wonderful piece of music and we and we're just you know because of money you know as soon as a, a rehearsal starts you know the, the 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 pennies the pounds are flying out the, the the bank account um and there's nothing worse than getting to the end of a, a rehearsal or whatever and feeling that you've just started to scratch the surface so um yeah that's the only thing I would change about my experience of being a conductor and, and for all conductors is just to, uh, for especially in this country where I think sight reading you know is a, an exceptional ability I don't know why the British musicians are such good sight readers but over the years I think it's put immense pressure on us as performers because you know commercially if you want a concert and you're, a promoter says look I've got this much money um, and that means you have to do it on one rehearsal rather than two. Mm. Uh, whoever accepts it will get the job. Yeah. And just over years, decades, um, it means that, you know, we become better and better sight readers and um, you turn up and sometimes you're not really inside the music the way you should be. And I think in Europe, that's you don't you don't have that experience. Um, mm. They tend to take their rehearsals far more seriously. They get properly funded. Um, and it means that when um, they go into a concert, they know the music inside out. And and you know, sometimes you know we we absolutely do, but there are occasions when we don't know it as well as we should. And I don't I don't like that. Um, it's not good for anybody. And yeah, it's fine to be a sight reader, but don't think we're ever doing ourselves a great service. And we're probably doing the music a, a huge disservice by by doing it you know it's it's a force of economics mm. if you want to be working then you have to accept the 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 musicians so that's the one thing i would change is is kind of how um time for musicians is valued by promoters and commercial um sponsors um give us give us time to rehearse and and really know a piece of music it's a really, really good answer. I, it's funny, you know, I, I do work in Europe and Scandinavia and, and one particular orchestra in Germany, and there is a lot more rehearsal time. And whilst when you start the rehearsals, the standard is not as good as the UK, by the end, I think, you know, you can go beyond it because you've got time, not only for them to learn it, but also time to discuss things and time to try some things out and time for things to settle and for things to become natural and and yeah it it, it sometimes as we I, we both mentioned earlier on about the clock ticking or be it a recording session or you're doing a whole concert with just three hours on the day you know that sometimes that can be utterly crazy because you can come across a piece that suddenly for some whatever reason the orchestra struggles with 
and you know that there's another really tricky bugger further down in you know in the rehearsal you haven't got to yet and you're always up against it and that it's 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 not healthy no no and i you know we do the music a, a disservice but um and it, it it's it's always better when the musicians really know the overview that you have as a as a director of yeah. the piece and you know you you've had the time to explain it to to practice it experience it and sort of when you say you know you want the shivers at this point you know by the time you get to a, a performance they're with you and they're committed um and they know exactly what's needed at the right time um when you're when you starve yourself of rehearsal time then it's very much you know spontaneous it can be really exciting but it can also be terrifying mm. but generally i don't think it's as it's um doing us any favors number nine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt oh i would love to have been a rugby player hmm. um there wasn't <laughs> any uh I was going to say before, as before I read the question out, I wonder whether it's going to be rugby or skiing, but it, it, it was it was rugby. Yeah, what position? Yeah, no, no. What what position were you? Hooker. I was always yeah. a hooker. I once played flanker, um, and that was exhausting. Uh, not much. Uh, I was very fast over twenty meters, right? <laughs> but, uh, but considerably uh, slower over forty. Um, yeah. And you know, I was short and stocky, and so I was kind of made for the front row. And I loved it. I loved the sort of the camaraderie of it, and the the sort of sportsmanship, um, and the and the the physicality of it, the the, mm. the aggression. You know, the, when as as a young teenager, um, it, it it worked for me, and I'm I'm still a passionate rugby supporter now, um, and I played to a very good level um, up to the age of nineteen, and then had to stop through injuries. Um, so yeah, in in my dreams, uh, I would have. I would have been a, a singing rugby player and then, you know, retired gracefully uh, at the age of, I don't know, 34 or something, carrying the World Cup and then walked <laughs> into the um, into uh, the Elbe Philharmonie as a concert hall and conduct the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you might be the first person to say rugby player. I've had professional cricketers before and I think even uh, an Olympic swimmer. Um, but rugby player, I think you're the first. And I'd just like to point out, uh, I do know from my statistics of the, the website where my podcast is hosted, that the second um, most populated country who listens to my podcast is in America. Dear American listeners, do Google the word hooker um, and work try and work out what it is to do with <laughs> rugby. Um, it's, a, it's also a rugby term. Uh, so it's not just what you thought it was. Um, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to be a professional hooker. Yeah. <laughs> Just an amateur one. Indeed. <laughs> My final question is, as always, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Um, well, my my father was a refrigeration engineer. Um uh -huh. And so, uh, you know, it's like a fourth emergency service. You know, when he was working all hours, uh, he would have to go out and fix. You know, if if you're on a if you're a butcher, you have a hundred thousand pounds worth of meat. If yeah. the fridge goes off in the in the night, an alarm goes off, and he would have to go out. And so he his customers absolutely you know worshipped him when he would save their save their skins, um, and they always treated him to the very finest cuts of meat. Mm. Um, and so I and my brothers uh, grew up 
eating tons of red meat um mm. just the most wonderful stuff and i'm still i'm afraid um a, a terrible carnivore and there's nothing better than just having the most perfectly cooked fillet of, of steak um funnily enough i'm having one tonight um <laughs> with the family uh so yeah I, i'm afraid it would be um just beautifully cooked steak you know cooking lots and lots of butter um and drink uh it's funny i don't don't have a real passion for any particular one drink you know the, in the summer i love um what's that drink uh with the orange uh aperol Thank oh you. yes yeah <laughs> um, aperol um that's really refreshing and you know lager in the winter i love real ale um and you know gin and tonic um and i mean with with steak i do love glass of really good red wine um so that's probably what i would have it, it's something that always makes me feel happy and i look forward to it and it makes me feel comforted um so if it was going to be the last night uh ever then that's what i'd go for and also knowing that my all my family adore the same thing uh yeah. would be be perfect i always know when it's an answer i agree with because my mouth starts watering and it's you know half past four um <laughs> i always i always know that uh it's it's one that i agree with and i definitely do agree with it i was tasting various argentinian malbecs as you started talking about fillet steak um but yeah well, there, there, there is there is a specific wine um that i would choose to have i can't really afford it but um i once had it when i was away with the king singers somewhere and at a um we were in italy and at a reception afterwards that was um sponsored by the head of bmg that was our recording label mm. at the time um and and he said nigel i want you to have some lovely wine <laughs> and he brought out this bottle of um it was called tignanello Right. And it was just the most heavenly stuff. And I, I think once in a mad moment, I, I bought a um, half a, a crate of it, um, but I've not had it since. Uh, but I, it's win, it's won lots of awards over the years. And I, I saw some the other day in, a, in a, an airport somewhere and I was just, you know, toying with the idea of buying it. And then I saw the price tag. I thought, no, maybe not. But yeah, <laughs> Tignanello, and it's the most delicious wine. I think it's actually from um, Tuscany. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, Reggio Media, that area where I, I did that first opera. Yeah, yeah. Well, if this was a food podcast, I'm, we both might even be sent half a crate each. Um, but <laughs> it's not a food podcast. Sadly, it's a conducting podcast. Uh, and what a joy it's been to make a, a podcast episode with you today, Nigel. I've had real fun. And I hope one day, uh, I, one of us, even if we do get sent half a crate, let's meet up and drink them. But if, you know, maybe over a bottle, we can carry on chatting one day. Well, but thank you for coming on. Thank you. Well, it's my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time. I chat with a Canadian conductor who first came to prominence in 1984 when he founded his own orchestra and has since gone on to have a highly successful career both symphonically and in the Opera House. Since 2018, he has been principal conductor of the Orchestra of St. Luke's in New York. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>